A woman's right to an abortion is enshrined in law. So why are we still discussing it? These issues have been shaped by people with nakedly self-serving partisan interests. The political intensity of it, that's an artifice. The Republican Party continues to uphold the principle that every human being, born and unborn, has a fundamental individual right to life. I'm saying things to you today at 85 that I said at 30, and I, we get, I shouldn't say we get nowhere. We got Roe v. Wade. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. After the Roe v. Wade decision, there was an effort to start blocking poor women from getting abortions. This is an ultrasound at four weeks. Listen to the sound of the heart beating. The life and death issues of abortion after this. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. In a healthcare obsessed summer, we decided to take up a hardy healthcare perennial, an issue so tough, so weedy, so evergreen, it sprouts in all kinds of weather and in every American terrain. We begin tonight at the State House. Lawmakers in the Iowa House have just voted on a bill that would make it a crime for a woman to have an abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Former Iowa governor, now Trump's ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, turned down federal funding, leading to the closing of four Planned Parenthood clinics. Meanwhile, the legislature's 20-week abortion ban is currently blocked by the courts. We are a pro-life state. It is a state where the vast majority of Kentuckians value the sanctity of human life and want to protect it to the absolute degree possible. Kentucky has one abortion clinic left. Earlier this year, it was informed by the state's Cabinet for Health and Family Services that it would lose its license in 10 days. The clinic got an extension, then sued. The case is still in court. If it loses, Kentucky would be the first state with no abortion clinic. I saw the power that comes when people of faith stand up and together we affirm that every life has value. Missouri Governor Eric Greitens led an anti-abortion rally at his own state house. This summer, he called a special legislative session specifically to pass anti-abortion measures. Meanwhile, the Oklahoma State House advanced a bill that would only allow abortions with the father's consent. The bill passed easily out of committee, but its sponsor, Rep. Justin Humphrey, did take a little flack for referring to pregnant women as hosts. When I use the term host, it's not meant to uh, degrade women. I actually went and Googled that, and I went to Webster, and I couldn't find a better term. The everlasting thrust and parry over abortion. And for all the combatants, the stakes literally are life and death. Why this battle is never resolved is the subject for this hour. Because abortion has come to mean much more than a medical procedure. It's a symbol of liberty or licentiousness, a display of decency or degradation, an emblem of all that is fair or foul in America. New Yorker staff writer and Harvard history professor Jill Lepore says it wasn't always that way. Abortion before what's known as quickening, which is when a mother can feel the movement of a fetus, which is around four months, is not a crime in the colonies in most places. Criminal codes begin in the 1820s with the rise of the medical profession taking over from midwives. And I guess we could hop to Margaret Sanger at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. So Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of the birth control movement, the founder of Planned Parenthood with her sister Ethel Byrne in 1916, they opened the first birth control clinic, is not herself a proponent of the legalization of abortion. What Sanger and her sister and the founders of Planned Parenthood are trying to do in the 19-teens is decriminalize contraception. And the kind of moral crusade of Anthony Comstock, who in 1873 argues that even talking about contraception is an obscene activity and needs to be criminalized. And Sanger and her sister, who are both nurses and who are both mothers, come from a very large family, a family of 11 children. Their mother died of tuberculosis at a very young age. There's plenty of birth control available to wealthy people who use it. The number of children of wealthy families decreases very quickly over the course of the 19th century. It's the poor who are having abortions and dying from them. So Sanger and her sister are campaigning to decriminalize birth control, partly 
as a remedy for abortion. Suggestions as to what to be done for a girl who was in trouble or a married woman who was caught passed from mouth to mouth, turpentine, steaming, rolling downstairs, knitting needles, shoe hooks. When they had word of a new remedy, they hurried to the drugstore, and if the clerk were inclined to be friendly, he might say, oh, that won't help you, but here's something that will. Sanger had actually been pushed out of Planned Parenthood, then run by men who were doctors, obstetricians, because she was too feminist, and because Planned Parenthood was essentially a very Republican organization. Eisenhower was on a family planning committee in the 1960s. Barry Goldwater was on a Planned Parenthood committee, so was his wife. Take me back to 65, the Griswold decision. The Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to two that Connecticut's ban on contraception was unconstitutional on the grounds of a married couple's right to privacy. I find this is so interesting because privacy seems to be constantly weaving in and out of the legal debate over abortion rights. Yeah, and I think it's actually a tragic ruling, frankly, for women's equal rights campaigns. When women involved in the reproductive rights movement in the early 1960s tried to bring a case using the 14th Amendment, to say that it was a violation of the equal protection of the law for women to not be able to hear from their doctors about contraception. The court refused that argument, and they selected a case where they thought that they could defend a decision to strike down the bans on contraception using a privacy argument, which turns out to be in my view, kind of a dead end. If you think about the divergence between, say, the reproductive rights movement and gay rights and same-sex marriage rights, the gay rights movement made a right to privacy argument as well, but without success. And in fact, when you think about it, the sort of 1980s, 1990s, come out of the closet, sort of AIDS act up moment was very much about refusing to hide one sexuality. They wanted the equal protection of the law, and they fought for it. And yet women have kind of inherited this right to privacy argument because that's what the Supreme Court was more comfortable with when talking about women. And it's actually a very Victorian notion. But isn't it privacy that leads to Roe v. Wade? Yeah, Roe v. Wade cites that same right to privacy. And they talk about the shadow caste by the notion of privacy, which is never stated in the Constitution, which many legal scholars say make it an extraordinarily weak decision, right? Right. That's what William O. Douglas and the court did in Griswold, was say, well, okay, the right to privacy is not in the Constitution, but you can find it (laughs) if you look between the letters and the words in the First Amendment, you can infer it. And he's resting on an argument that was made in 1890 by Louis Brandeis and his law partner, Samuel Warren, that is entirely bound up with Victorian notions of femininity. Brandeis and Warren said the right to privacy can be understood to be in the Constitution because it protects us against the incursions of modern technology that might pry into private life. And they were particularly concerned about their wives and their daughters. Say They were really concerned about cameras, women being <laughs> caught on camera. It sucks their souls, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but Douglas kind of pulls it and puts it into the context of Basically, it's about the vagina. (laughs) Right. Like, that's private. It is not the same as making a case using the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It's not as sturdy as that, and it has come under very, very strong attack. Something else not mentioned explicitly in the Constitution, women. And if you're not going to talk about women, then you've noted that people have to find rights for themselves in the margins in the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights in the Constitution contained soaring language, but these documents were written at a time when a large number of people who are now U.S. citizens were not considered eligible for full citizenship. And so when there are arguments to be made in a court of law about the rights of those of us, they take a certain amount of contortion. 30 years of legal argument in the 19th century was about whether the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution included black people. And that was an argument that was won. It's been a very, very long struggle after winning that legal argument to win it 
in the streets and in state houses, but it was a legal argument that had to be made to resolve the ambiguity in those documents. You note that in the vanguard of these family planning efforts in the 60s were Republicans. When uh, Title X was passed, which provided family planning services, it passed with bipartisan support. Nixon signed it. Then a year later, part of Title X, which had an allowance for military doctors to perform abortions, was revoked by Nixon. Something happened. Yeah, and what's happening is Nixon, who had been pro-family planning, is greatly influenced by his speechwriter, Pat Buchanan. Nixon is just completely obsessed with re-election. And Buchanan says, you know what, you're going to have to switch your position on abortion because the Pope had decried it and it was a deep and powerful moral issue for the church. If you change your position, then the Catholics will have to move to the Republican Party. And this is at a time when Nixon is undertaking his Southern strategy to recruit white Democrats with his law and order rhetoric. And much less attended is this, you know, what I think of as the female female strategy, which is to say, you know, we can bring Catholics into this new Republican coalition over the abortion issue. Buchanan and other conservative Republican strategists take a lot of credit for this move, but really it's Phyllis Schlafly. (laughs) Very hardworking a Republican Party activist from Illinois who brings that pro-family conservatism into the Republican Party. The Republican Party continues to uphold the principle that every human being, born and unborn, young and old, healthy and disabled, has a fundamental individual right to life. She allies two completely different political constituencies. People who are opposed to the ERA, which looks like it's about to be ratified, and people who are opposed to abortion. And she brings into the Republican Party evangelical Christians. Schlafly and her supporters argue that 1960s liberalism celebrates the individual and promotes the rights of the individual at the expense of the family and at the expense of a kind of moral order that abortion becomes a linchpin for. The party leadership switches earlier following Schlafly. The Republican Party had first endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment in 1940. It had been on its plank every four years since 1940. And Schlafly convinces the Jews to get it off the plank. She she famously said, Feminism is doomed to failure because it is based on an attempt to repeal and restructure human nature. And she said, Sex education classes are like in-home sales parties for abortions. She's incredibly effective, turning the position of the Republican Party 180 degrees away from what it had been for a very long time. So Nixon was reelected in November of 72, and that was eight days after the Supreme Court issued its ruling on Roe v. Wade. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. In 1975, when Betty Ford is in the White House, Morley Schaefer from CBS comes to interview her for 60 minutes, and they have this incredible conversation. (laughs) He says, I'm going to ask you about some taboo subjects. What are your views on abortion? And she says, I feel very strongly that it was the best thing in the world when the Supreme Court voted to legalize abortion and, in my words, bring it out of the backwoods and put it in the hospitals where it belonged. I thought it was a great, great decision. Betty Ford was perfectly willing to say what a lot of Republican women felt. And a lot of those women then left the party. And it completely transformed the party system. Hmm. After Roe, Planned Parenthood was forced to pick a side. Are you in favor of abortion rights or not? How could they not be in favor of abortion rights? One of the things that happened after Roe, and especially after 1977, was that the women's movement came to understand itself as the pro-choice movement, which really narrowed the movement and also left outside and abandoned all the other issues that women had been fighting for. So that's not Planned Parenthood's fault. Planned Parenthood is a health service provider, but it also has an advocacy arm and made a decision to defend abortion rights. 
And Planned Parenthood has been stuck in this uh, same defensive crouch for about 40 years. But abortion just doesn't seem to move. Yeah, but abortion is a really complicated issue. It is the analog to the gun ownership issue before the 1970s. They're not partisan issues. And then they become hyper-partisan issues. They're super polarizing. And they both, to people, feel like they're about life and death. Either guns are murder or they're freedom. Either abortion is murder or it's freedom. And it's, it's that there's like a grid. Like you have on one axis, you have abortion and guns. And on the other axis, you have murder or freedom. But the illusion is that this grid is somehow natural. Like these are just how these issues are in the world. They're how these issues have been shaped by people with nakedly self-serving partisan interests. The political intensity of it, that's an artifice. Jill Lepore is a professor of American history at Harvard University and a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks a lot. Coming up, Miss Sherry's abortion expedition takes her from romper room to Sweden to the cover of Life magazine. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Sherry Chesson, also known to her frustration by her married name, Thinkbine, loved kids, had four little ones, including a toddler, and a day job spent with more kids on Arizona's NBC affiliate, where she was known by yet another name, Miss Sherry of Romper Room. She was happily pregnant again. The year was 1962. Romper, bumper, stomper, Tell me, do magic mirror. Tell me today, of all my friends, had fun at play. Today's a special day for Early in her pregnancy, brought low by morning sickness, she tried a sedative her husband Bob had brought home from London. The brand name was Distaval. The generic name she learned was thalidomide. She also learned of the deformities wrought by the drug in Europe. She saw a photograph of five babies without arms or legs, and she felt a ticking time bomb inside of her. She feared for others who might be at risk, so always impulsive, she called her local newspaper. I was thinking of, oh my God, there had been a contingent of Arizona Army guardsmen over in Germany where the drug was first synthesized, Somebody could have brought it back from there. So I picked up the phone, called the editor of the paper, and he wasn't there, but his wife was. She said, our medical reporter is doing an article on thalidomide. May he call you? And I said, of course, but he won't use my name, will he? She said she wouldn't use my name, and they didn't. Although on Monday morning, page one of the paper, black border around it, baby deforming drug may cost woman her child here. And it went on to say Scottsdale school teacher, and they had four small children. I thought that was narrowing it down quite a bit. We let it go at that, and I went to work, and romper, bumper, stomper, boo. When I got out of doing the show, somebody said, you have an important call, and it was my doctor saying, because of the story in the paper, albeit anonymous, I cannot do the operation because any person could make a citizen's arrest. And I thought, a citizen's arrest? This has nothing to do with anyone. This has to do with my family, my children, 
four children under the age of seven. She asked what office would be responsible for handling a citizen's arrest, and being Sherry, she called to give them an earful, and a young attorney picked up the phone, listened to her righteous indignation, and replied, I know who you are. I have a four-year-old daughter named Valerie, and I had the flu last week, and every morning from 11 a.m. to 12, we did romper room with you. You're Miss Sherry. And he said, if it comes to your needing a lawyer, I will do anything I can pro bono to help you. That afternoon, when they decided to go into court and file a lawsuit, that brought not only the uh, Arizona press, but the whole damn world down on my shoulders. In Arizona law at the time, an abortion is legal if necessary to save the life of the mother, period. What the attorneys decided to do was to send me to a psychiatrist who would make a declaratory statement on the word life. Did life have to mean physical life and dying on the operating table? Could life be mental illness? Did you resent that idea that you had to be shown to have a mental illness of some kind before they would consider an abortion? Brooke, I didn't resent anyone who would any way, shape, or form help me to avert this kind of a tragedy. Mm -hmm. At that time, you're grasping at straws. People were telling me to fill a bathtub with gin, and I didn't know if they said drink it or, or sit in it. <laughs> Sorry, I have a weird sense of humor. She would come to need it. The first psychiatrist was showing me flip cards, and he said, now you say the first thing that comes to your mind. And I thought, oh boy, psychology 101. Mm -hmm. He showed me this card of a woman lying in bed, a man standing beside her with his pants either half on or half off. And I gave him all sorts of flippant little answers. What he was going for was some devious, ugly reason I wanted an abortion that had to do with it wasn't my husband's baby. He kept throwing these things at me that had all this sexual connotation. And I said, <laughs> you know, he was so far off. He not only recommended that I have the termination, but that child services take my four children away because I was unfit mother and that I further be sterilized. So after that, we had to go to another psychiatrist and I walked in and somebody very avuncular, you know, like, hi, Uncle Benny. He said, would you like a donut? And I thought, would I like a donut? I was sitting on the edge of my chair expecting more of the same. And I said, aren't you going to ask me some questions? And he says, oh, no. It's already been recommended to a three-man medical board to okay this abortion. And I may as well have a donut and just wait for some time to pass because he wasn't going to ask me any questions. She says that doctors in that part of Arizona were already doing about 300 abortions a year. They just didn't call it abortion. They called it D&C, dilation and cuterage. This one was just going to be another one just like that, but somebody namely me, opened her mouth and started a, a landslide. Her doctor's Catholic associate found out and threatened to expose him, so he had to drop out. The doctor who delivered her last kid refused. Her uncle, who ran a hospital in Denver, promised aid but withdrew it when the news of the story reached there, as it eventually reached across the world. Then Japan was suggested, but fearing anti-Japanese demonstrations, the consulate denied her a visa. What are your plans uh, after Sweden? I just want to do what's right for myself in my family. I don't no. feel bitter towards anyone. I, I don't feel bitter towards people who oppose us religiously. I only hope that they could feel some of what's in my heart in trying to prevent a tragedy from happening. A newspaper in Stockholm agreed to arrange and cover the cost of the abortion in exchange for an exclusive. There, she endured three weeks of what she called interrogations in the midst of a media melee, and then it was done. And then they found out the baby had no arms I asked, like I'd asked four times before, if the baby were a boy or a girl, and the doctor said, and I've never forgotten that, it was not a baby. It was abnormal growth that never would have been a normal child. 
And that's the way I helped heal myself. We left Sweden, went to Bob's hometown in Indiana for a week or so, went back to Arizona, found out I had lost my wonderful job by the NBC vice president. And I used to say aptly named Ray Schmucker, but I, <laughs> he has since died. <laughs> um, he told me I was no longer fit to handle children. And a couple of years later, he had the audacity to call me after he fired me. His daughter was pregnant and wanted to know what we knew about. He wanted you to help him. He wanted me to help his daughter to find an abortion. So people are hypocrites. Look at Dick Cheney and how against uh, gays he was until Mary Cheney decided she was a lesbian. And then all of a sudden, you know, because people are people. We're all the same. But everybody's wrapped up in these trappings that make them seem holier than thou. But they're just as weak or just as loving when it comes right down to their own problems. Do you think your story caught on because you seemed such a middle American everywoman, so relatable, so, dare I say it, white? Maybe I am did represent every woman, so to speak. I loved kids. My husband was a teacher, high school teacher. The fact that we were an intact family at the time, and um, I wasn't trying to get rid of a baby because I didn't have enough money or I wanted to finish my degree or I had enough kids. I wanted that child. If it had to happen to people that would soften the edges for a lot where they're lucky it happened to us. I, I, I wanted that child. And, and that's another thing that there could be medical reasons for abortion and they get it mixed up with the moral stuff with the legal stuff. Do you believe that women should be able to decide whether or not to have a pregnancy for any reason? Or do you think it should be limited to medical things? I would never question anybody's legal, medical, whatever reason, because that's a private matter. And while I will work my family off to get you the right to do whatever you deem is right for your family. You do not have to tell me the reason. You do not have to tell me why. You do not have to justify it. You're 85 now. You've seen the complete modern history of abortion politics unspool in this country. Has it shifted, or is it the same debate? In 55 years, it hasn't shifted an inch, in my opinion. And it makes me feel like, oh, my God, not this again. I'm saying things to you today at 85 that I said at 30. And I, we get, I shouldn't say we get nowhere. We got Roe v. Wade. Now we have to fight to protect it. It's, it's just going to you know, go round and round. In fact, I got a little thing in front of me. It says the wheels on the bus go round and round. And that's the wheels on abortion go round and round and round and round. Sherry, thank you very, very much. Well, you're welcome, honey. Just know that you will be helping someone who hears it because it's always what happens. The mommies on the bus go shh, 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 shh. The daddies on the bus go shh, 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 shh. Sherry Chesson, formerly of Romper Room, now a founder of GORP, a group that offers children's books and teacher's guides on such issues as bullying, sexual abuse, and gun safety. She's lived through the era of not talking about abortion at all into the era of talking about it incessantly. Activists on both sides are in constant argument, while state houses rush in to ensure that the information gap is filled in ways they deem appropriate. But the views of the states may conflict with those of the medical profession, resulting in less clarity and more confusion, as WNYC's Mary Harris reports. 
If Leah Torres was your obstetrician and you walked into her office and said, I want an abortion, the first thing she would do is dig into her desk for one particular folder. It's literally a script typed out to make sure she doesn't break any laws. So if you can imagine, it doesn't instill a lot of confidence. This document is long, two single space pages noting every possible side effect of the procedure. Mostly it's accurate, and mostly it contains the information I would have given the patient anyway. But she also reads things that she would never tell a patient. It says one abortion risk is post-abortal syndrome. That's a name that's been coined for abortion regret. That syndrome does not exist. That is not a thing. And after reading that script, Torres has to ask her patient to sign a consent form that says she can request pain medication for the fetus. And there's no medical evidence to support the claim that a fetus can feel pain. At least in the earlier weeks of pregnancy. Which is why Torres has this technique. As she's reading the script and going over documents, periodically she'll just interrupt herself and say, that last thing I said, by the way, that isn't true. I've had patients kind of laugh because it's a ridiculous situation. They sit there and they listen to it, but they're like, I don't need any of this information because I know what I want to do. People know what they need. Torres practices in Utah, And the reason this conversation has become so complicated is because of gradual changes to one state law, Utah Code 767305. In the last 25 years, this law has been revised at least 10 times, each change part of a slow-motion tug-of-war over how doctors must talk about abortion. And this war of words got started here. So let me dig this It began with these little booklets the state used to send out to abortion clinics. The first ones I found were published in the late mid-80s. Now you can find them in a storage closet inside a break room at the Utah Department of Health. Lori Baksh, she's the manager of the Maternal and Infant Health Program here, is digging around to find them. This is the booklet from 2004. Here's one from 2012. They feature pictures of fetal development. And when Utah's Department of Health started producing these booklets, the rules around informed consent and abortion were pretty simple. A doctor had to tell a patient about at least two adoption agencies, about the details of development of unborn children, and any risks of the procedure. That was it. The law was 144 words long. But in 1993, this law quadrupled in size. Suddenly, the state required doctors to tell women about their fetus's gestational age, about child support, And that little booklet from the Department of Health became state-recommended viewing for any woman seeking an abortion. And it got thicker. We are required to put in pictures and descriptions of the developing fetus. We're required to discuss current procedures and their risks. It takes Lori a full two minutes Um, to take off um, all the requirements. There are a few statements that we're required to also give women, and that is that the state of Utah prefers childbirth over abortion. That's a that's a pretty long list. <laughs> yes. The booklet that is in its printed form is now about 30-plus pages long. Over the years, legislators got creative about how they got inside the conversation about abortion. Some things had to be said out loud. Others had to be written into a consent form. In 1996, legislators asked the Department of Health to make a video Deciding what path to travel can be a difficult decision. It's called an informed decision. I got my test back this morning. And? I'm pregnant. Does Mike know? No. Sean Emery was pretty new to video production when he won the state contract to make this video. He says he charged about $30,000 to get the job done, which included casting about for just the right fresh-faced girl— who spends much of the video chatting with a friend on a couch or a park bench. You said a state legislator was also sort of involved in scripting it? Yeah, I want to say his last name was Kilpack. Robert Kilpack sponsored the legislation that led to these videos. He died in 2013. But I remember he was involved in making sure the script was written properly, making sure we were on point and not going too far overboard. Kilpack told the Associated Press he wanted to show women what happens with a fetus in abortion. Kilpack was a dentist. He said, a lot of people don't understand embryology like I do. If you save one child, is it worth it? I think it is. The Supreme Court has said states can tell women they prefer childbirth to abortion, but they have to use medically accurate information to make the case. 
Earlier this year, when a professor at Rutgers asked a group of experts to independently review the documents that states give women when they show up for abortions, they found one-third of the information they evaluated was wrong. I asked her to review this video, and she said the same kinds of mistakes can be found here. Often these are errors that misrepresent the embryo, like when the narrator says this. This is an ultrasound at four weeks. Listen to the sound of the heart beating. The researcher told me heartbeats usually aren't detectable until a pregnancy is seven weeks along. Then there's this. When eight weeks have passed since conception, in the brain, there may be electrical waves. But the researcher found no evidence of brain waves in any embryology textbook. As legislators have added to the informed consent material, they've become more mindful of the legal line they're walking. Over the past two years, Representative Kevin Stratton has sponsored a couple of bills to further expand this material. This is a moral issue for him. May we be illuminated and guided by divine providence. It's my prayer. So this is like a passion of yours. That's probably fair to say. I've been involved in two pieces of legislation, certainly. This year, he wanted to require doctors to say an abortion may be able to be reversed. When I asked him why, he told me about one of his constituents. An individual had gone and commenced the process for a medically induced abortion. That means she was using the abortion pill, which is actually two pills. The first is called mifepristone. The second is called misoprostol. You have to take both for the abortion to be complete. This woman took the first pill, and then she called her provider, and she said, I've really had a change of heart. I would like to know if there's any options at this point. And at that point, she was told that there's nothing you can do. You have to take the second pill. Well, that's inaccurate information. 30 to 50 percent of the women who take mifepristone alone the pregnancy will continue. If you don't take the second abortion pill, you might stay pregnant. But lots of people, including the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology, think reversing an abortion is a deeply misleading phrase. So Stratton knew his legislation wasn't a slam dunk, but he started meeting with people on all sides of the debate to see if he could make abortion reversal part of informed consent. (laughs) One of the people he met with was Dr. Leah Torres. She was nervous. You can hear it because she recorded their meetup at the state capitol. It's her way of taking notes. I'm an OBGYN, and I've been living in Utah for four years. Shucks, going on five years. Torres agreed to let us share this audio as long as we only played her side of the conversation. Right away, Stratton surprises her. He says, what if I could change this language so you don't have to lie? like I'm on the stand. He says, what about instead of reversing an abortion? We talked about the options and consequences of aborting an abortion. She says, no. He keeps running more language by her. She keeps rejecting it. Again and again, Torres comes back to this point. If somebody is uncertain about their abortion, I turn them away. I want them to make sure that they are making the right decision for themselves. And that's regarding abortion, pregnancy, hysterectomy, tubal ligation. Any medical intervention requires informed consent. So he was surprised that I would turn away somebody who wasn't certain. Well, that's what I do. It's my moral and ethical duty as a physician. When Arizona tried to pass a law about abortion reversal, the ACLU sued. A court refused to let the law go into effect. Stratton's getting creative because he doesn't want that to happen to him. Frankly, it was a heavy lift. Did you ever think about giving it up? That's not something I do. By the end of their conversation... Torres is imploring Stratton not to make that conversation she has to have with her abortion patients any more complicated. She tells him, I've had nightmares about giving women an abortion they regret. But she left with a good feeling. And I walked away thinking that was very productive. But I didn't fool myself into thinking I had changed his mind and heart. She hadn't. Seeing all present having voted, the vote is closed. A few days later, Stratton brought his bill to the floor of the House with the exact same language Torres had been arguing against days earlier. That moment was a little surreal, as in, we already discussed this, I can't believe that we're here. And in March, the bill was signed into law. And I think Leah would say that I listened to her, and I'm confident that she would admit that it ended up better than it started. After all, his bill doesn't talk about reversing an abortion anymore. Instead, it talks about options and consequences— It says, research indicates that mifepristone alone is not always effective in ending a pregnancy. 
If you've taken mifepristone but have not yet taken the second drug and have questions regarding the health of your fetus or are questioning your decision to terminate your pregnancy, you should consult a physician immediately. But for Torres, this only intensifies the confusion. The falsehoods that the state requires me to tell patients are easily remedied, except now the patient is confused as far as who they can trust. Do they trust the state? Do they trust their doctor? The doctor is contradicting the state. The state is contradicting the doctor. So nobody wins. Other physicians have no idea what the laws are. Even my partners who don't provide abortions have to ask me, so if a 16-year-old da-da-da-da-da, no one knows the laws because they're so confusing, they're so ever-changing. Doctors don't want to risk it. The law says if you don't do this informed consent right, you can lose your license. There are two abortion clinics left in Utah. That's half as many as there were just a few years ago. Around 60% of women here live in a county without any abortion provider. It's been over a year since Torres performed an abortion. So regarding informed consent, patients aren't getting it because doctors don't know how to give it because of all of these regulations that require informed consent, ironically. But she keeps counseling women because she's one of the people who know how. For On the Media, I'm Mary Harris. Coming up, how the words we choose blinker our thinking, an argument against the phrase pro-choice. This is On the Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Words are like matches, useful, but if they're crafted badly or handled carelessly, they can spark and make you flinch. The subject of this hour is more like a Roman candle. Tell me you don't want him to get an A word. Yes, I do, and I won't say it for a little baby ears over there, but it rhymes with shmushmorshin. I'm just saying, hold on, Jay, cover your ears. You should get a shmushmorshman at the shmushmorshman clinic. Even the words we choose with care are fraught with danger. They are inherently political, and political phrases simplify and divide and distort. For years, supporters of abortion rights have described themselves as pro-choice, the political contrast to pro-life. Politics is so embedded in both phrases, the AP style book suggests avoiding them altogether. Dorothy Roberts is a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She believes that in the abortion debate, the phrase pro-choice is problematic because its politics miss the point. The problem is that in the United States, not everybody has the resources to actually make a choice. If you don't have the money to pay for an abortion, what good is that right to choose? From the very beginning of the pro-choice movement, especially after the Roe v. Wade decision, there was an effort to start blocking poor women from getting abortions with the passage of the Hyde Amendment that denies Medicaid funding for almost every abortion. And states have also denied Medicaid funding Right to choice has come to privilege mostly white, middle-class women who do have those resources. The idea of pro-choice, it's a liberal notion, and yet it aligns with a, you wrote, neoliberal market logic that relies on individuals' purchase of commodities to manage their own health instead of the state investing in it. Choice implies that the market is fair, ignoring the social inequalities that continue to shape many people's lives. And then when they want to terminate a pregnancy and they can't get access to an abortion provider, they can be blamed for their bad choices 
that they just have the inability to make it in the market, and then even punished for those choices. And the choice framework doesn't oppose that way of thinking. It plays right into it. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the question, how do we give Black and Latina girls living in poor neighborhoods more opportunities, better prospects for their futures? That's what the question should be. Can you tick off some of those policies that work against the kind of reproductive freedom that the pro-choice movement is supposed to help ensure? I would argue that the pro-choice movement historically hasn't had a sustained major effort to block the Hyde Amendment. I'm I'm not saying that pro-choice activists haven't addressed the Hyde Amendment and the lack of funding for abortion, but it hasn't had the prominence. It should be equally as important as Roe v. Wade itself, but then there's a whole slew of policies that haven't fit into the mainstream pro-choice movement that are targeted primarily at women of color to keep them from having children, that devalue their right to bear children. Such as? Well, coercing women in prison to be sterilized. There was a revelation recently about a sterilization program in the California prison system, about 150 women who had been sterilized while incarcerated, done in violation of the ethical rules Many would argue, including myself, that sterilizing an incarcerated woman is a form of coercion and violates human rights. Well, here we go again with maybe they made the choice, maybe they even signed a form, but under the conditions of being locked up in prison. Welfare family caps or child exclusion policies that deny to women receiving welfare, any additional benefit if they have another child while on welfare. That is a form of government policy deliberately implemented to deter women on welfare from having children. Another Mm -hmm. is the prosecution of women for using drugs while pregnant. Now, in the 1990s, the main targets of these prosecutions were Black women who smoked crack cocaine while pregnant. Yeah, it turned out there were really no crack babies. That's absolutely right. It was it hinged very much on this false perception in the media primarily, but also supported by some very shoddy research that crack cocaine caused these monstrous effects on the fetus and that these babies were going to lack social consciousness, that they were going to have all sorts of health problems, they were going to be prone to be criminals, and all of that has proven to be false. That is an example, though, of a policy that punishes childbearing, not that punishes the decision to terminate a pregnancy, but it also shows the link between the criminalization of pregnancy and abortion rights, because what it has produced is the view that the fetus is to be protected by law and that pregnant women should be punished for harming fetuses. Well, it's very hard to distinguish criminal charges against a woman for harming a fetus that she intended to carry to term and for abortion. And in fact, in some of these cases, the prosecutions are against women who try to induce an abortion, and they're being charged with killing a fetus. So the failure, I think, of the pro-choice movement in the late 1980s, 1990s, to take up the cause of pregnant women, primarily Black pregnant women, and advocate for their rights, has now allowed for this fetal protection craze that is harming the right to abortion. So let's assume we can toss out pro-choice, even though it's so enshrined now in our 
cultural argument. What would you prefer? Well, there's a growing movement of women of color, feminist activists, who are proposing that we replace choice with justice. And we call this new framework reproductive justice. Take the focus that has been on an individual woman's right to choose and place it on the social conditions that are necessary for women to have true equality and freedom and well-being. And that requires more than protecting the legal right to choose. It requires social change. Justice, not just rights. Yes, justice. Creating a society where all people have the resources and the social conditions they're entitled to. Healthcare, education, housing, food, freedom from state violence, all of these are required for women to have real reproductive freedom, but it requires justice. And so we would then see reproductive justice as linked to the movement for universal health care, to the movement for economic justice, environmental justice, Black Lives Matter. All of these movements are connected to reproductive freedom because they all are directed to creating a more just society. Dorothy, thank you very much. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thank you, Brooke. I really appreciate it. Dorothy Roberts is a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, Killing the Black Body. That's it for this week's show, which was conceived, no pun intended, by WNYC reporter Mary Harris. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Isabella Kulkarni, and our show was edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.